We are excited to launch the 2024 season of the HC3 podcast with a truly extraordinary guest, a pioneer in public health and a symbol of resilience and leadership during times of adversity. We welcome Dr. Allison Arwadi to this episode of the HC3 podcast. As the former commissioner of the Chicago Department of Public Health, Dr. Wadi has a compelling story marked by dedication, innovation, and a steadfast commitment to the field of public health. Her career journey began with an exploration of medicine and evolved into a passion for epidemiology, which led her to a crucial role in guiding Chicago through one of the most demanding challenges in recent memory, the COVID-19 pandemic. Join us as we explore Dr. Wadi's remarkable personal and professional achievements and discover her aspirations for the future of Chicago. This is the HC3 Podcast. We're your hosts, David Smith and Megan Phillips. episode of the HC3 podcast is sponsored by HC3's managing entity, Third Horizon Strategies. Third Horizon Strategies is a consulting firm focused on shaping a future system that actualizes a sustainable culture of health nationwide. The firm offers a 360-degree view of complex challenges across three horizons, past, present, and future to help industry leaders and policymakers interpret signals and trends, design integrated systems, and enact changes that all communities, families, and individuals can thrive. With staff located in 10 states across the U.S., Third Horizon Strategies is available to support organizations with services ranging from strategic planning, program implementation, research, and data analytics. Learn more about who we are and what we do at thirdhorizonstrategies.com. Dr. Arwadi, take us way back to when Dr. Arwadi was a little girl and was (laughs) imagining what she was going to do when she grew up. What did you think that was going to be? And then how did you end up in public health? I did not know public health was a field. Forget about when I was a little girl. I didn't even know public health was a field all the way through college. I really came to it later. When I was young, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. My mom was a teacher. My dad was in journalism. I thought maybe I wanted to be a teacher. Maybe I wanted to be a writer. I had lots of ideas along the way. I was not actually even pre-med undergrad. I was a history and literature major. Really? Yeah, but really interested always in how history and literature connected to science and connected to medicine. Did big projects on history of medicine, and that had always been an interest of mine. And was interested in environmental biology, conservation, had done a lot of international work. Anyway, I finished college and actually I was updating travel guides for a living, which I loved. It was my part-time job in college and my full-time job in the summers. But then I needed a real job and I thought maybe I would do some medical or science editing, writing, and I actually really hated it. And I'm glad I hated it so much because- I I see you, by the way. I feel that. I see you. Yes. And I was living in New York City. I really needed a job. And I was like, maybe I do want to go to med school after all. Like, it's something I'd considered, but- Just a lot of the kids that I had met who were pre-med seemed very hyper-focused on the science. And I was always more interested in how does the science fit into society and got a job, thankfully, working in a hospital, hooking people up to EKGs, helping with some research, but there was really good tuition benefits. And so I started taking my post-bac pre-med classes, some of the physics, I'd, I'd done all the biology, and then I 
for fun, they had, again, good tuition. And so I could take like history of New York City and architecture. And I took an intro to epidemiology class just for fun. And I was like, this is the most interesting science class this I've ever had. Fun. I love this. Like, how did I not know about this? And then for fun, I took another class in the School of Public Health that was about law and HIV and tuberculosis law across borders. And I was like, okay, this is great. I love this. Like just the ability to have science. And I knew that I wanted to be a doctor at that point and fit it in. But once I knew about public health, I was like, I think this will probably be what I end up doing in some way, shape or form. So by the time I went to med school, a little later than some people, even then I knew I would probably do something public health related. The first summer that I was in med school, I was in rural South Africa. That was before HIV meds were available and just really seeing all of the structural issues. I think sometimes you can see structural issues better outside of the society that you're living in and really thinking about why were these meds not available in rural South Africa where they'd been available for many years back in the US? Why were certain investments not happening? Why was public health not there? It just reinforced for me that this was a field I wanted to do. I took a year off from med school. The first time I was with CDC, I was actually, I did a year just as a student in Botswana working on tuberculosis. Finished med school, did internal medicine, pediatrics residency, always loved infectious disease. And so was like, am I going to do an infectious disease fellowship or am I going to do what I ended up doing, which was a postdoc with CDC in something called the Epidemic Intelligence Service. That's a two-year training program for physicians, veterinarians, other other PhD level folks specifically to learn outbreak response. And again, even then I knew that was just, again, the ability to use the science, use the infectious disease knowledge, but think about it in terms of controlling disease, preventing disease, big pictures. I've always been a big picture thinker. So oh. it was a little bit of a roundabout way to get there. But really, once I found public health, I was like, oh, this is what I was meant to do. And I've loved it ever since. Like we all come to where we are in circuitous pathways. Yes. What was it, Allison, about infectious disease and epidemics that really, there's so many things you can do in public health and they're all, they all have really exciting elements, but infectious disease is so unique. What was the draw to that for you? So a few things. Again, history, history and ethics of public health and medicine was my first big academic interest. And so I'd read a lot about the history of outbreaks. I think every time you see an outbreak, especially a big one, you are holding a mirror up to society and you're saying, where are the cracks? Where are things not going? We saw so many big changes in the world, frankly, as a result of some of the big epidemics of the past. It really makes people question power structures. It makes people think about who to blame or how to understand disease patterns. And so I'd always just been interested in it intellectually. And then I think practically infectious diseases are the area that I think we've made the most progress against in some ways in medicine, right? We developed antibiotics, we developed vaccines, we developed techniques of controlling and preventing disease that are just not there in a lot of the other areas of medicine. And I always was fascinated by the science, by the prevention aspects of it, and by the fact that you can do these large scale interventions and have enormous impacts uh, on society. So it was just something I think both intellectually and from a science standpoint. I also think with HIV, frankly, many people I think my age in public health grew up with HIV and 
just seeing that disease and how it landed not in equitable ways, in ways we did a lot of blaming. We did a lot of, again, what does this mean for society? What does it mean for how we make medications available? Whose voice do we hear? Um, how are we describing in a pretty marginalized popula population back in the 80s? How are we thinking about a disease that is really landing heavily on gay men? And what does that mean? Again, holding up to yeah. society. So I think just a confluence of the time that I was growing up and the things I was naturally interested in. It's so interesting that you say that. I, I love the, the reference to holding a mirror up to society. So at the beginning of the pandemic, it's like April 2020, I've got a small business and I'm really uncomfortable about the state of things. And so I call my old boss, Governor Mike Levitt, who had served as the Secretary for Health and Human Services in the Bush White House. And during that period in time, there, there were a couple of epidemics that broke out in different parts of the world. And so he was charged. I think I'm getting this right. I think the president charged him with creating the nation's first um, pandemic response plan. And so I'm asking him some questions about this in 2020 and saying, what did you do? What did you learn through that? And he said, I spent months really digging into the history of, and so this isn't just infectious disease, but really learned a lot about the history of pandemics. And he said, the most interesting thing about a pandemic, especially when it's happened at the scale that we saw with COVID, is that there's kind of society as it was configured before and society as it's configured after. And these pandemics are this incredible inflection point, it changes the economics, it changes how we communicate, it changes political structures and ideologies. And I thought that was so profound. And I thought, oh my God, I have this incredible opportunity to watch this stuff happen in real time. And I feel like we are. Like, I yep. feel like everything has changed relative to how it was in 2019. So that must be part of what you're describing is just the social and economic and political impact from something that is scientific and objective. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. We had done a lot of preparedness work around pandemics. Actually in Chicago, we had spent all of 2019, thank goodness, updating our pandemic plan. I didn't know that. Yeah, really? our pandemic influenza plan at that point, but it's comparable. We had soup to nuts, you know, thought about what if you had to close schools and you had to feed kids, had gotten people together to think about that. We'd practiced popping up our pop-up morgues in the hospital parking lots and thinking with the medical examiner and with the hospitals, what would that look like if you potentially had an overwhelm of that system? We had worked with our communications platforms. We had, there was a whole exercise actually called Crimson Contagion that was about a, it was written as an influenza that had emerged in China. And then we had some of the earliest cases here in Chicago in the exercise. And it was thinking about where did we have gaps? How did we grow this? And the fact that we in Chicago here, not that anybody had any full what was needed for COVID, but we were actually in a place where we had spent the last year thinking about a pandemic here and in very specific numbers and had imagined food insecurity and social unrest and all of those things that come along with it. And frankly, we had made a lot of investments. We had millions of pristine N95 masks ready to go for our hospitals, which was not true all over the country. We had done a lot of that preparedness work that I think is often not recognized, it's often not funded, it's not supported. People don't want to imagine that the big one is really coming. And so I did feel like we were in a better place than we might have been because we thought a lot about this. But I do think we knew that there were gonna be 
once you know that this is going to be big, it's not just about the cases. It's not just about the containment. It's about all of these indirect effects. And I had seen this, particularly when I was with the CDC and I'd been in Liberia for the Ebola outbreak. I was there really early, uh, before there were a lot of resources, and was there as, just in a small role, watching the healthcare system collapse, basically shut down, watching the schools close, watching the unrest that was coming in a setting where there were almost no resources, right? And if you don't have resources, we knew what was needed there. That's a disease that is all about personal protective equipment. You'd be in a hospital, they didn't have gloves, right? The most basic things were not there. I really, I'd studied it, but I think viscerally came to understand that this was going to be about not just cases and containment, it was gonna be about how well do we coordinate? How well do we communicate? Those two things are how any outbreak, big or small, goes well or falls apart. And how from the very beginning are we going to think about indirect causes? Because they're there. We're going to see changes. We might not know exactly what they're going to be, but society is going to change. And we need to think about how you can build trust and transparency in that context to get us through the parts that we know how to do, to get us through handling the cases and handling the containment, working on those other pieces, but thinking about what are those indirect effects? And really from the beginning here in Chicago, we were doing that. We were thinking about the economic piece and the schools piece and all of the parts that were not as central to the people who are also getting sick and dying, which of course has to be first and foremost in your mind. But yeah, I think a good outbreak response has to think beyond just the people who are sick today or the people who might get sick tomorrow and think about all of the other people who are being impacted and what you can do to mitigate those impacts. Yeah. Those of us in Chicago, I think maybe I suspect the majority of us are probably unaware that we were the beneficiaries of your leadership, both given the training and the previous experience you had prior to your appointment. But then also, I I didn't even know this, all the preparatory work you did in 2019, having no idea what was coming in 2020. Let me ask you this, we're at the end of 2023. You've left your post at the uh, Department of Public Health. And I suspect you've had some time to reflect a little bit more in the last few years with a little bit of space. If you could go back to January, February of 2020 and talk to yourself and say, okay, here's what's about to happen. Here are the couple of things you absolutely, like we did and you need to do it. Like make sure you get these done, but here are a couple of things we didn't do or that we missed. Like what, if you play the tape back, what did we get right as a city and where could we have gotten it better so we know for the next time? Yeah, that's such a big question. I think, you know, by and large, I really am incredibly proud of how this city got through COVID. And when I say that, I don't just mean me or the health department. The way we saw sectors come together, we managed to, I think, make decisions based on the best science we had at that time. I think that was true at the city level, state level. And know that all the decisions we were able to make there were based on the data that we had really trying to do what we felt was best. So I I see that as a real strength and one that was definitely not true all over the country, right? Talking to my counterparts. I'm also incredibly 
thankful to my emergency preparedness team at the health department that had led on a lot of that work that had put us in a better spot. I think there were so many lessons. We knew that this was not going to land equitably in Chicago, just like it wasn't going to land equitably across the country. We had already, as a health department, we were supposed to launch our five-year plan in March of 2020, which was called Healthy Chicago 2025, and it was focused on the racial life expectancy gap even before COVID. And it was not a surprise to see how much worse certain neighborhoods, certain population groups were hit by COVID, but I think it was sobering um, when you're looking week after week, month after month, despite having a major equity focus from the very beginning that had been in our plans. Um, and we can talk some about this, but I think some of the best work we did here and some of the work that was different was things like prioritizing vaccine for most impacted neighborhoods in a scientific-based way, hiring people from the hardest hit communities to become that the outreach workers the, to build the trust, to build some of that infrastructure. A lot of that equity-focused work, I think, was some of the most important. But I also think you look at the deaths, you look at where they landed. We have a lot of gaps um, here in Chicago and, and as a country. I think it made me really think about long-term care facilities um, and how those are just not set. They are incredibly vulnerable. They're incredibly vulnerable all the time. But I think that really highlighted that piece. And there's a lot of work, I think, to do there as we think about taking care of our oldest and most vulnerable Chicagoans and Americans. There's lots of work to do there. I think the serious work of being honest about the reserves that people have when a crisis comes. Um, I remember early economic data and just recognizing how few people in Chicago had the resources to be able to buy two weeks of food at a time and be home with it and stay home, or whether even the potential for all of the stressors that were coming with COVID, just so little resources there. And I think as a country, we were all we eventually started doing some more support of safety net there, but we've been unraveling all that again now. And I think we're seeing already some of the impacts on child health and other pieces as a result of that. But I think just our safety net is very frayed and people were falling through it left and right, despite lots of lots of us. I also think maybe one other thing is we were focused on almost by definition, you had to do that through virtual means, right? And nobody in the world was particularly well set up for that. But I think, again, when we were looking at some of the data of who in Chicago didn't have internet access, right? You're thinking about the kids trying to do the virtual school, not having it, but also their parents and their grandparents, whole neighborhoods that just weren't set up to be able to even access the internet at a time when the resources, the information are largely moving online, I think made me think really differently about that as a necessity. And those are just some examples. They're science-based things. If we had known early on that you could spread COVID without having symptoms, that would have completely changed the conversation from the beginning. It would have changed the, you don't even have to wear a mask necessarily. You can only spread COVID when you have symptoms. And all of the prior coronavirus outbreaks that we'd worked on, including I'd worked on Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, that was the coronavirus outbreak before COVID, and you had to have symptoms. 
times. That was just how it worked. And there were some things we learned along the way that I think, oh, if you'd known this, you might have had a different approach early on. But I think the big ones are the safety net, frankly, and what, again, as society, what are our cracks? We saw them really badly here. What are we doing to make sure that people are able to abide by public health guidance? You can't be encouraging people to stay home when they literally don't have the resources or the jobs um, that allow that. We thought about essential workers in ways that were really different and I think helpful uh, for this country. And then just some of the ways we communicate. But the biggest one for me is about resources, right? We didn't fund public health well before COVID. If you look at the healthcare dollar in the U.S., we spent Prior to COVID, we were probably spending two cents of every dollar on all public health work, all prevention work. We spend almost all of it after people get sick on the healthcare system. Even in 2020, the big year for public health, we were spending five cents of every dollar on that public health work. And seeing a lot of the COVID funding that came to public health and that came to the social safety net during COVID, watching all of that now being dismantled is really hard because it means that preparedness work that we built, the infrastructure that can allow people to live healthier lives, to ideally work on the long-term inequities that mean that any infectious disease will land worse on a population with more chronic diseases and less access to healthcare. Those are the things that I worry we've just not adopted. And it's hard for me to watch programming that we set up here in Chicago be dismantled. And it is, that's happening and it's going to continue to happen as the funding, I think, runs out. And then we'll be less prepared, right? And we'll be back to knowing that when the next thing comes, yes, in Chicago, we've done and will continue to do a lot of the really practical work, things like the country will not be without PPE again, I think. But it's not just about stuff. It's about, it's not just about plans. It's about having the structure, the trust that allows you to actually have a healthier society and have people ready to respond. An outbreak is not the moment to try to start building trust. Yeah, I was going to say the overlay of, to your point, when you had delayed the 2025 plan rollout, and we actually did talk to you later that year when we when you finally did roll it out. But I I think it's very telling and interesting to see that intersectionality when there is a crisis and the the exact same issues that you were trying to start to address just really showcase themselves in the numbers, in the data, and and, in just what people experience. Yeah, that's exactly right. We finally were able to launch the plan in, I think, September of that year. And it was really striking because we did not have to change one word of that plan. We were, that plan was focused on all of the underlying reasons why Chicago does not have an equal chance to be healthy. The top five drivers of that racial life expectancy gap, where, for example, Black Chicagoans, even before COVID, were living almost 10 years less long. We were seeing big life expectancy drops in Latinx Chicagoans. The biggest one is chronic disease. It's never the sexy one. Number two was gun-related homicide. Number three was infant mortality. Number four was what we called HIV and other infectious diseases, which is why we didn't have to change a word of the plan. And then number five was opioid overdose. And those five drivers got worse for the most part during COVID and a society that has so much inequity in those is going to see inequities in uh, large infectious disease outbreaks as well. But I think you're right. The work of how do you create structures that work on those long-standing plans, that's the bread and butter work 
of public health, those longstanding diseases and all of the root causes and the decisions, frankly, that have been made over decades by government and by society that create these outcomes. That's what you've got to work on long term. And I think COVID just put a spotlight on it and highlighted the need for that kind of longer term work. Yeah, I think what one of the things I, I think about a lot right now, and it's so consistent with what you said, is you know, it feels as human beings, we have this proclivity to go through something that's really painful. Then we forget what that pain felt like. And we don't take preventive measures to, to prevent the onset of that pain from potentially happening again in the future. And we all talk so much about how enlightening, how important COVID was for so many reasons, because it did hold up that mirror. And we saw all these things and there was consensus on so many things for a while, but then the consensus started to crack. And then as we exited the pandemic, people started to forget. And then you just described funding levels are starting to go back to a baseline, the urgency, the attention. And of course, there's so much just happening in the political economy and the economy. It's crowded this out. Do you like, what do you think we need to do in this country to position public health to be radically different as a priority than we've done in the past? So I think that has to happen, first of all, at every level of government. Um, it has to be a priority at the local level. It has to be a priority at the state level. It has to be a priority at the national level. You know, I already said resources are not the beginning and the end, but you can't do any of it without resources. Right. And I saw it's this. The ticket to ride. It is. I saw this, you know, again, when I was in Liberia and we just needed gloves and you didn't have, the Liberian government knew they needed gloves, didn't have the resources to get those most basic things and society falling apart as an example. Um, I do worry that with all of the um, increased like politicization um, around COVID that we have forgotten that public health is what brought the largest gains in life expectancy, right? As a country where you think about sanitation and you think about vaccines and you think about a lot of the things that we now take for granted. I do worry that we're not, we're back to thinking about public health as just something that shows up when an outbreak hits. And that is a very small part right. of what public health does. I also think it's about just health. Most people, not everybody, but I do think most people agree that health at some level is a right. The act, the ability to live a as healthy a life as possible. But I think questions of what does that actually look like? Again, not just thinking about health care, not just thinking about what is my right after I get sick, but what is my right to live in an environment that that allows me to be healthy? And most of that is not actually about health care access, although that part is critical. And so I think, again, where you take a program like WIC, for example, that's the Women, Infant and Children, the Supplemental Nutrition Program that really makes sure that pregnant people and young children and young families are able to get additional healthy nutrition. That's a program that's got evidence around it. That's a program that has helped with all kinds of those early outcomes. And that's the kind of program that is potentially on the chopping block at the federal level. And when we think about decisions to cut programs like that, it makes me worry that we're back to not considering health and the most basic human rights, like access to healthy food as a right. And I bet most of the people listening didn't even know that WIC funding is being considered for potential, potentially being cut because we're yeah. only thinking about 
perhaps COVID. And so I just feel two cents of the dollar is not enough to be spending on, on public health. And we're not getting good outcomes, as you know from it. Most countries spend a lot more on public health and get a lot better health outcomes as a result. One of the things that I want to pull through is this idea of trust and the communication around this. There is obviously a lot of disparate ideas that are floating around and the way that we receive information has shifted, especially because of the pandemic. First, I want to credit that you were the face of Chicago and I think created for those that could access TV programming and Facebook Live. I think that you created this accessibility to what was going on during a very scary time. I know I personally benefited from that, but I also think about those trusted messengers yes. that you also helped to seed and train through CDPH as well as other community partners and thinking about how are we carrying that through in, through in this communications era of disinformation, whether, and also going back to your initial sort of thoughts of you're deeply rooted in the science, but you're also deeply rooted in humanity and the connectivity of the science being important and influential into how we treat ourselves. How are you grappling with that communication and that trust and, and rebuilding that. Yeah, so I can't emphasize how different the communications were and had to be during COVID. I worked in local government. You were very used to maybe you do a press conference every month or two and everything is pre-vetted and written out. There was not the time yeah. to you've be had, doing any you've of You've had tryouts Yes, and, and you know, all and, of yeah. these pieces, right? And it's very scripted typically. And but you don't have the time for that. And frankly, you will lose trust if you take too much time. And so at the beginning, yes, this decision to be out every single day directly answering questions from the public was just uh, it was a decision that we made because we certainly didn't have all the answers, but we wanted to share what we did know. There were things that we knew that the general public needed to learn about related to data and epidemiology and how you can keep yourself safe in the evolving science. And I think it it grew to be something I really enjoyed doing because you never can guess the questions people are going to ask. Doesn't matter how much you prepare, the questions people actually ask will be different. But as not very much time went on, we were right away thinking about, okay, who is not going to access this? Who is not going to trust me? I am a white woman. I am a doctor. I work for the government. You name it. There are many reasons why perhaps the messaging that I'm sharing, even though it is as accurate as I know it to be, it's unlikely to reach people. And the decisions that we made from very early on to hire from the most impacted communities, train people, even if they had not had a background in public health. We really wanted folks who were good communicators, who could be trained to become vaccine ambassadors and outreach workers, who were from predominantly Black or Latino communities that perhaps we're not going to be as plugged in to the mainstream media, but also we're less likely to trust that messaging. And we did a lot of outreach. We funded a lot of work. We created a lot of message maps. And I have to give so much credit to so many organizations here in Chicago that took that central messaging and then adapted it. And I don't just mean translating it into 
50 different languages, thinking about how to bring that messaging and that trust down to the community level. We, under Mayor Lightfoot, we started right at the beginning, this racial equity rapid response team. How often do you think about racial equity and rapid response in the same sentence? Basically never. I never had. We thought about it as something you're working for for 20 years from the future. And this was about getting people from the most impacted communities and truly listening to them. And if they were saying, this is before vaccine, if they're saying, we don't care that much about PPE right now, we care about food, we care about internet, we care about trying to build trust. And it was saying, those are gonna be the things then that we're working on first and foremost as a city. From that position, I think of humility. I think some real conversations happened in this city with a lot of partners who don't always partner together, who rose to the occasion. And I think that trust that was built across religious leaders, across community leaders, and across government is not to be taken for granted at all. And then I think the work of translating that to regular Chicagoans who were all having very different and very difficult. Every Chicagoan had a difficult but different experience with COVID. I think that was part of what helped us continue to, for the most part, row together here, have a concerted vaccine effort once one did become available and and take it forward. But I said from the beginning, communications and coordination is where things fall apart. And that is what you spend I think any good leader spends, that's what you spend the most time. It's a little less about what are you doing and more about how are you making the decisions, who is at the table, and then how are you thinking about communicating that? Not just communicating out, but getting information, good information in, and then adapting based on your local data. That's how you do not just COVID, that's how you do any good, not just outbreak, but I think crisis response. I'm sure if you haven't already, there will come a moment where your successor in that role here in the city will reach out and be interested in your thoughts. What did you learn? What would you prioritize? What would you do if you were me? What counsel would you, would you give? What counsel would you give them? What are the, so COVID notwithstanding, you understand the public health challenges in this city. What advice would you be giving to that person to continue to extend the work you're doing and push that even further? Yes. So I would start with telling her that she's so lucky to be coming into this job, that there is an amazing team at the Chicago Department of Public Health in so many areas that is so committed and that she's coming in to a city that I think did in many ways actually get along differently and collaborate differently during COVID. There are a lot of partners, including non-traditional, the health partners, but also some non-traditional health partners who worked incredibly well with the health department during COVID. And so I think it's a moment to continue to build those partnerships, but in other areas to think about how, as a city, are we responding to those other priorities, to the chronic diseases, to the opioid overdoses, to the violence, infant mortality, etc. And I think, number one, you've got to have good data. And that means, in my opinion, good local data that is actionable. So you really understand 
how problems are landing, that you're sharing that data with community leaders and working together with them on what responses should be. We did a lot of work with data transparency during COVID. We had millions and millions of hits to our COVID data dashboard. We used to be happy if we got like 10,000 hits. When, but people came to look to the health department for data and then decisions based on that data. And I think you've got to take that approach. That's how you build trust. I also think that she will need to be a voice to advocate for public health resources, again, at every level. As we watch this, especially federal funding, run out, it is critical that leaders in big cities, not just Chicago, but across the country, are talking about the work that goes beyond COVID, how the investments here in Chicago, we made important new investments in things like Family Connects. That's having nurse home visits available to any newborn baby, that family in Chicago. What are those needs? How do you think about that in a universal way that sets up young families well? Work that we did in substance use, and there's an incredible amount to do there and more to come. But I think you've got to do it. You've got to open up the tent. You've got to have the advocates and the partners and the people who don't always agree with you be part of thinking about the solutions. And then together, you've got to advocate for resources. And there is no way around that, because if you don't have the resources, you can't build what we showed we can build here in in Chicago around COVID. And I think the having somebody who understands public health, they will understand that and be doing some of that work. Public health is yeah. very much a team sport. On the it's the third time you've really emphasized the pushing and advocating for resources, yeah. which I agree with a hundred percent. I think one of the challenges is that those resources are often subject to right, a political process. That's and right. The political process is subject to an electorate. And we have an electorate right now that is just being blistered with misinformation, polarized ideology, and, and yep. the like. And so this becomes really difficult because empirically and objectively, you can look at it and you know what needs to happen. But the process that would require the the maximization of that is so broken, so historically broken. How have you, I, I know you've thought about this. Mm -hmm. How do you think public health needs to change in the way it engages with everyday residents of a city yes. or everyday Americans? What needs to happen in education, trust, yes. like where do we go from here? Because the funding, it feels to me like the funding and the prioritization will come as the electorate comes, but that's the big job. Yes. No, I, I totally agree with you. I think that at all levels, public health had a, a wake-up call around the need to more directly connect with American Chicagoans, right? That public health is not just about making sure that the healthcare community has the information they need around infectious diseases. It's not just about the science. It's about that work of having people understand that public health is about policies and systems and environments, and that it is not just about outbreak response. I think that at all levels, there's been some reckoning with that and some understanding. I think stories that are not about COVID, frankly, that are about the ways in which public health interventions have saved lives. One of the problems, of course, we call it the prevention paradox, that you don't see the people who don't get sick when you contain an outbreak early. You don't see the people who 
never develop asthma because the air that they are breathing is healthier. You don't see the kids that never get lead poisoning because you've eliminated lead paint in the home that they grow up in. It is harder to quantify things that do not happen. And yet I think there actually is, there's good economics around that, that I think even for political lawmakers, there's more ability to tell that story. But it is about storytelling, I think, and having people really understand that the work of prevention in, has worked around the world, actually, has led to better health outcomes. There is an incredible amount of polarization right now. There's an incredible amount of, as you say, misinformation, disinformation, I think very concerted campaigns. And I think public health wasn't ready for that. That's another piece. Yeah. Really, our ability to quickly respond to and contain misinformation, disinformation, particularly in a, a social media type environment where people are not all reading the same newspaper every day. That is not something that we were ready for. And it's not something I think that we've totally figured out yet. But I would also say that's part of because Things like communications doesn't usually get funded very well within public health. And so I do think that there are, where you think about some of the issues most impacting Americans now, we were talking before, the number one thing killing Americans, 18 to 45 year olds right now is opioid overdoses. Everybody knows someone who has been impacted by substance use disorders, in many cases, by opioids. And even if people are coming with different political backgrounds or thoughts about what do you lead with there, I do think there's common ground that there is an amazing amount of work to be done and that prevention is a huge piece of that. Overdose prevention, substance use prevention, and whether you're in a red state or a blue state, whether you, there's all kinds of beliefs out there when a problem does get recognized as a universal problem without obvious, and the things that we've been trying so far have not fully worked, I think there's more openness to thinking about supporting work that has evidence and data behind it. And there is work that has evidence and data behind it and connecting that to the lived experience of not just everyday Chicagoans or Americans, but of the people who are making those political decisions. And you've got to believe that you can find common ground on some of this because we we have to make progress. I don't think there's any way around it. And we're not going to get out of this just by treating people after right. they've had an overdose. I have to take that as one example. Right. So I don't have an exact answer to this. One of the reasons I'm excited about the new role is that I'll be learning from people who have been thinking about how to shape these conversations, I think, carefully, how to really lift up the things that we do know work and make sure that we're investing in a way that is based in the science and based in lived experience. And those, I think, have to come together when you work on any of these big problems. I want to go back to a comment you, you made this comment a couple times. You referenced our safety net in mm -hmm. the city. Um, so the safety net being our hospitals, our federally qualified health centers, mental health centers, community-based um, organizations. And you use the term frayed, mm -hmm. which I agree with completely. It was frayed in 2019. It was frayed in 2015. It was frayed, I think, frayed in, in 2005. 
I think COVID weirdly, I'm on the board of Sinai Chicago, right? So COVID, honestly, for as hard as I know it was on our health workers, our patients, our administrators, our clinicians, economically, COVID was not the worst thing that happened to Sinai Chicago. Utilization got hit, but the federal funding gave us, it extended the runway from where we otherwise would have been coming out of 2019. But now we're right back to where we were in 2019. And I think the entire city is in that position. And in our view, we are dealing with a four to six year runway before we start to see major realignment in the safety net that this city does not have the capacity to endure. What do you think needs to be done state level, county level, city level to start improving? We have incredible safety net assets in the city. How do we support them in different ways so it's not frayed, but it becomes a system that works in lockstep with public health? Yeah, so I do think there's some interesting and important work happening at the state level here where we're looking at things like some of the 1115 waivers, some of the ability to think about funding social services using Medicaid dollars, for example, to support some of the social needs that folks are having when they're showing up at the doctor's office and the top thing on their mind is food insecurity or housing insecurity or some of those other issues. Are there ways to link some of that together? There's some good examples of that around the country. Um, and I'm interested and I, you know, the state is doing, I think, good work uh, trying to explore that and think about that. There's all kinds of things in the reimbursement models, as you know, um, that are being looked at and need to be looked at. Most of the Chicago Department of Public Health's funding is federal. I will tell you right now this year, over 90% of it is direct grants from the federal government, mostly the CDC. And so it's actually a very small amount of city funding that goes to the health department, much smaller than in most other cities, frankly. And I think thinking about just broadly as you're working on the big issues in Chicago, whether that's violence, whether that's opioids, whether that's infant mortality, really thinking about making sure that some of those city resources are also going toward public health and prevention. I think there's been some progress on that and there's quite a bit further to go. And I think doing this long-term planning and doing this long-term planning with equity at the center of it. That's something that we've made some progress on, but I do see some backsliding happening. And when I think about safety net, I'm not just thinking about the healthcare safety net. I'm thinking about the fact that, and again, a lot of this was federal dollars. We increased things like the food support that people who needed support with food could get during the pandemic. And that's all been rolled back. We thought about increasing things, earned income, some of the child tax Mm -hmm. credits, some of that kind of work that really seems to have had an impact on child poverty. We're thinking about undoing some of that. And I would just encourage at every level, I do think that there's things that can be tweaked, that if you keep it you, you keep these lessons from COVID at the center, you have a longer term plan, and you think about not just paying for the health care after people get sick, but paying for the systems that help them stay well, help them get their transportation that they need to make it to their preventive visits, all of these kinds of things. I do think that will pay off. It's just a really different way yeah. than we've thought about health care. I think about 
the fact that I just anecdotally and personally know that you have continued whenever possible to also treat patients. And I think about your comment of the storytelling in that that experience and the prevention piece. So I don't want, you don't have to obviously with, within violation of, of patients' rights of their experiences, where you put your time in to still see patients. I, I, I would love to hear the motivation behind doing that. And then also what that shows and brings forward into this broader systems level thinking that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I trained as a doctor. I love seeing patients and it was not something that I was willing to give up. So for a decade now, I have volunteered with Community Health here in Chicago. It's the largest free clinic. And I've seen patients, for the most part, it's been once a week. And those patients are uninsurable, meaning most of them are here in this country and unable to get the paperwork that would allow them to access or historically access insurance. We've seen some improvements with that, certainly, and some big investments at the state level. And so it means that week after week, I am seeing patients who are largely outside of even the safety nets that we have built in this country. And these are folks who are here and they are working and they are trying to prioritize their health when their health is usually not the thing at the top of the list of things to worry about, frankly. And so I like understanding. I take care. I'm a primary care doc. So I take care of a lot of hypertension and diabetes and depression and anxiety and other things too. But really working with patients to understand how these diseases fit into their life and what is possible and what is acceptable. I also have been very frustrated at times by seeing how much we will spend to fix somebody in an emergency, but then how hard that can be to support what's needed long-term. And places like community health certainly pick a lot of this up, but let me just to tell you a patient story. I remember early when I was, when I still used to do a lot of hospital-based care and I was on cardiology. I do internal medicine and pediatrics. So this was the adult cardiology. And I took care of a patient who had a massive heart attack. He was experiencing homelessness, living behind his Dunkin' Donuts. And he had the kind of heart attack that usually will kill you. But Somebody called 911, he quickly got to the hospital, he quickly got the care that he needed in the emergency department, went to the cardiac catheterization lab, got the stents, got the work, got like the amazing life-saving healthcare and had about the best possible outcome when you look at his heart function that anybody could have. Wonderful, right? We've saved his life. And then I was part of the team that had to discharge this patient. And not only was this patient experiencing homelessness, but he didn't have healthcare set up. He didn't have any of the pieces that were needed. And most fundamentally, he couldn't get the medications that he needed to keep him from having another heart attack. After somebody has a heart attack, they need to start on blood pressure medicines and medicines for their cholesterol. They need to be on blood thinners. It's really important. Or those stents will clog right back up. And the hospital where I was working at the time would discharge him with 10 days of medication. And that was it. And there was no plan for this gentleman for him to continue getting the medication. And as working on cardiology on the inpatient, it wasn't really my job to try to solve all of these problems for this man. But I was like, 
I cannot keep working in a setting. Like it was wonderful to be part of the team that saved his life, but it's, he was going to be back right in a month or two with another huge heart attack. And we would do the whole rigmarole and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars again and potentially save his life, but lose more of his heart muscle. And it was patients like that, getting to know them, understanding that we were absolutely failing them as a healthcare system that made me want to work on public health, that made me want to say, I am more interested in why this man can't, have access to the things that he needs to prevent the next heart attack. And that's part of what made me make the change to public health. Working directly with patients, I love it because I can, because I'm seeing them in a setting that supports things like their medications. I can work with the patients. We can get their diabetes under control. We can get their blood pressure under control. We can get their preventive care. And it's really satisfying to help do that on an individual basis. When in my day job, I'm thinking about these issues at a city level and it can feel really hard and intractable. So I like the individual conversations that you have with patients. I think it keeps you honest in public health if you're working with patients and seeing all the barriers that people are coming up against. And I think it makes you a better, more empathetic, but also you can relate to the challenges that healthcare providers are having too, when you don't have a lot of time to see patients and the resources aren't necessarily there. But public health is not primarily about healthcare. It's not primarily about getting that man his care after his heart attack. It is about providing this that help him prevent him from having ideally a first heart attack, certainly one after that. And those are the issues that I want to, and I do love working on long-term, but you keep those patients in mind. And I think about those individual conversations that I had whenever I'm thinking about, thinking about policies on a citywide level or even a nationwide level, it comes from people's individual experience and it should, it's not honest programming if it doesn't. Absolutely. And I think a lot of this stems from I appreciated your juxtaposition of having worked in other countries and other systems and being able to compare that. Because I think a lot of times what we see anecdotally in the U.S. is to your point that we're treating physical health and not always the social and mental and other components of health. And this encapsulation that you are positioning public health is really a place that we should and can invest in as a city, as a country to to help bolster an ecosystem that does catch that person through housing and other supportive services. So yeah, that's more of a comment than a question. Yeah, no, I think that's right. There are there are countries that do this much better than the United States does in terms of return for dollar on investment, if you want to talk in economic terms, and that does it better in terms of health outcomes, actually. And I think that we have an incredible healthcare system in this country. I'm grateful that I can get amazing healthcare when I get sick. And I love that is something we have gotten so incredibly good at as a country, but that's not the whole story. And making sure that we are doing the work that many other countries have prioritized around the preventive care and the primary care and just the environments and the social structures, thinking about just to get really specific, where we live in just about the only country in the world where 
whether you have health insurance and what kind of health insurance you have is predicated on whether you're working and who you're working for and what that looks like. When I lost my job, I lost my health insurance that exact same day. I had the resources, yes, to quickly turn around and figure that out and get some more. I am un I am insured right now. But for many people, that wouldn't really be an option. And we take for granted that we that is a good way to think about access to healthcare. When so many people are falling through the cracks, we think about things like sick leave and maternity leave, paternity leave in ways that are first and foremost, I think, tied to economics when there are major health benefits actually that can come with them that then pay off in an economic mm -hmm. kind of way. So there's all sorts of macro level things, but I do think from a place of humility, understanding what has worked well in some other countries and bringing some of that to the incredible, groundbreaking, amazing health care that we have. But that there are ways that I think we could be healthy. I know we could all be healthier um, as a society. Um, so as we look back at your tenure here in Chicago, before you were the commissioner, you were also the chief medical officer. You held multiple roles within CDPH, and, and this has been your home what are you most grateful and hopeful for that we have started to accomplish or, or on, our, on a path for? And what is your hope for the city and the CDPH and, and our community partners? Yeah, so I've spent the last decade here working in public health, two years at the Illinois Department of Public Health, although I was a CDC assignee, and then eight years at the Chicago Department of Public Health. They have been the best eight years, really, of my life in many ways, even though COVID was so incredibly hard. There is nothing I would have rather been doing and there was no one I would have rather been doing it with than that team. They really are incredible. And again, we saw so many partnerships. I think we had a lot of support for not just the direct impacts of COVID, like I said, but thinking about that indirect work. You know, Chicago tends to know me for COVID. It's so funny to me. I still get recognized by the L or walking down the street and people will want to ask me about their vaccine or whatever, talk to me about COVID. But when I was the chief medical officer, working a lot on things like preparedness, working a lot on things like substance use disorder, thinking a lot about violence prevention, frankly, and all of the ways in which you can take evidence and bring it to these big structural problems. I do think that we have folks in this city who know what needs doing. And I think we made some important investments, not just in COVID, but in these other areas that started, I think it's important and we are doing evaluation of some of that. I was just reading some of the work where some of the areas where we're making more of the violence intervention and prevention investments, right? Those are longer term public health approaches. We are seeing actual significant improvements in some of the hardest hit neighborhoods. And that's a whole host of things go into that. But I think some of it is about taking real public health approaches. I think the fact that we finally are at least seeing some flattening in opioid overdoses here, although they're incredibly high, that's been the result of evidence-based um, interventions and approaches. And so I think, I hope that this city will continue to be interested in public health and asking questions, not just about COVID, but about these other areas and how do we create systems and policies and environments. This is 
the city that I consider home at this point. This is the city that I care about. And I think that taking a health first approach to so many of the problems that we have here will yield real benefits. And I'm confident that many people here will uh, continue to push for that. And I'll continue to push for that, uh, even if I am not always here for the next few years. Yeah. And so as you step into a more national role, what are you looking forward to? You already started to share with me offline, but would love to share with our audience what you're most excited about tackling in your new role. Yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to be leading the CDC's work on what they call injury prevention. So it's not the infectious work. It's the work of overdose prevention, violence prevention, suicide prevention, unintentional injury prevention, things like drownings, things like older adult falls, car car crashes, things that are again not maybe always top of mind for people when they think about public health approaches. But Opioid overdoses, you heard me say, they're the number one thing killing Americans 18 to 45. And where you look at kids now, one to 19, it is injuries and it's injuries related to firearms are the number one cause of death for that group. These are our biggest in many ways public health problems. And I'm excited about working on those big problems. We certainly don't have all of the answers, but I think we do actually have some pretty good evidence about what can work and how you bring public health approaches that are more familiar to the public, perhaps in the infectious disease space, bringing some of that over into this non-infectious space, doing the storytelling, doing the partnering and the work with policymakers to think about how to get our hands around this more as a country. It's going to be an incredible challenge, but I'll be taking everything that I learned here in Chicago with that. I'm really proud of a lot of the work we've done to expand access to mental health care here for people who are uninsured or underinsured and not just care, but thinking about prevention. What does that look like to create spaces in schools, for example, that are more supportive of positive mental health, right? Not just treating disease, but creating systems of connectedness, working on loneliness, thinking about all of these pieces that come together. Mental health is health. And the non-infectious things that we see, whether that's violence, interpersonal violence, structural violence, whether that's some of the substance use work, these are also the indirect effects of the decisions we've made as a society. And there are ways to work on those cracks too. So I think it's going to be a really different kind of job. I'm looking forward to learning from the incredible team at CDC that's working on this. And I'm going to bring what I learned here on the ground. And we're not done learning on the ground. I'm going to try to bring that to the national stage and keep learning, keep talking to people and hopefully be part of this country's continued focus on public health, even as COVID thankfully is more in the rearview mirror. We are not done with these kinds of approaches. And I think they're needed in areas like this more than ever. The HC3 podcast is a production of Third Horizon Strategies, Associate producers are Megan Phillip and Topher Rasmussen. Executive producer is David Smith. The music is by Don Finter. Help others find our show by leaving a review and a comment. 
For more information about the Healthcare Council of Chicago, please visit our website, www.hc3.health, or drop an email to meghan at hc3.health. Lastly, we want to express our appreciation to the incredible community organizations who have tirelessly devoted themselves to the betterment of the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. We'll see you next time.